FoundationDB is a multi-model distributed key value store. It is fully ACID compliant and horizontally scalable. FoundationDB is not usually used directly by an application developer. FoundationDB is a foundational building block for higher level distributed systems, such as the metadata storage system for a data warehousing tool like Snowflake. Ryan Worrell is a software engineer who specializes in FoundationDB. He joins the show to discuss the architecture of FoundationDB, including the roles of different server components and the read and write path of FoundationDB. We also talk about applications of FoundationDB and how it compares to storage engines such as RocksDB and databases such as CockroachDB and Spanner. If you want to find all of our episodes about distributed systems and large-scale databases, you can check out the Software Daily app for iOS. It includes all 1,000 of our old episodes, as well as related links and greatest hits and topics and reading material. You can comment on episodes, you can have discussions with members of the community, and you can become a paid subscriber. You can get ad-free episodes of Software Engineering Daily by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. And if you're looking for help with mobile and web development, I recommend checking out Altology. They're the company that has helped us build the newest version of the Software Daily app for iOS. And the Android app is on its way. It's another two to four weeks away. And I'm really excited to have to have two awesome apps for Software Engineering Daily that will soon be in the App Store. The one for iOS is already there and it's quite good. So please check it out if you're interested. Ryan Worrell, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Jeff. Thank you. We're going to talk about Foundation DB today, and I'd like to start by discussing the applications of Foundation DB. What would I use Foundation DB to build? That is a very tough question because it's so applicable to so many different problem domains, and you'd be able to use it in so many different ways. But just to the most basic use case for it would be you need some key value storage that you need to be able to transact across any of the keys at any time. So it presents itself as a single system to you and you can do transactions over any keys that you want. But it's really important to know that you, you're you not designed to use it just in that way. You're supposed to build stuff on top that takes advantage of that to do fancier things. Is that where the name Foundation DB comes from? The fact that it is meant to be used as a foundation to build more abstract systems? Yes. As far as I know, that is the conceit there where the, the name comes from. There's a, the company is, it would be 10 years old today or not today, but uh, this year, if it were, if it were still a private company and that's the origin story as far as I know, but that was a long time ago and I wasn't there. Indeed. So there are many different key value stores in the world. People can, people who are listening to this are probably familiar with in-memory systems like Redis, or well, it's not entirely in-memory, but or, or systems like you know MongoDB. It's a, a document storage system. Uh, there's things like Spanner and CockroachDB. Well, I guess those are those are more SQL transactionality. There's you know you've got RocksDB, and maybe we can go through these comparisons a, a little bit later. But you know before we get to the comparisons, can you give a more narrow definition of when and why I would use FoundationDB, even as a building block for a different system? 
Yeah. So the the important criteria you would need to evaluate whether or not FoundationDB is is good for your specific use case is if you are expecting the storage to exceed the capacity of a single machine, that would be a good good place to start because um, it's a distributed key value store designed to run on multiple machines. You'd also want to know that you you need transactions. Um, there are certain use cases, like an obvious one is purely read-only data where transactions would not be particularly useful. But once you get past those two things, basically you need you, you need something that, that has the capacity to grow beyond a single machine and you need transactions. Those would be about the two things I would say. There are specific you know, different issues when it comes to performance and the cost of using FoundationDB in terms of maybe it's not as efficient as some other system that you could compare it against, but those are more in the weeds. And I think that if you if you know that you need both scale out of storage and a number of requests per second that you can process and you need transactions, those would be two good criteria to start with. All right. Well, it's clear to me at this point that we're going to need to delve into the subtleties of FoundationDB in order to truly understand when and why we should be using it. But just so we can anchor our understanding around some prototypical use case, can you tell me one or two places where you have seen FoundationDB be particularly useful? I don't know if it's a shopping cart application or a video game, you know, data management, just some concrete application for us to anchor our understanding around. Yeah. So I think a, a good example that has been talked about um, relatively publicly, including at the FoundationDB Summit, is the use case from Snowflake, which is the, the cloud data warehouse company. They use FoundationDB to manage the metadata for their cloud data warehouse. And by metadata, I basically mean, um, this is a bit you know in the weeds of their specific architecture, but they store the the data for the tables in the data warehouse in S3 and the metadata about you know what files belong to what table is in FoundationDB. And all, alongside that, they also store all of the kind of generic OLTP type data that people are familiar with, like user records and accounts and permissions and things like that. Those are all stored in FoundationDB as well. So it's a it's a combination of the metadata for the the actual data warehouse itself, along with all of the supporting cloud services on top that are basically access control and management and things like that. Wow. Now I'm seeing Snowflake in a totally different light. We did a show about Snowflake a while ago. And if I recall, one thing that makes Snowflake pretty good, and, and this is something you want out of a data warehouse, is you've got your piles and piles of data and you want fast access to that data. One way to get fast access to your data is to index it in a bunch of different ways. An index gives you faster access, faster lookup time, and I think an index is kind of one form of metadata, uh, you know, data about the data. Like the data that you're actually indexing and building metadata around is is the data that you're throwing in your data warehouse, but you need a way to comprehend that data and that is the metadata store that that will exist in a data warehouse. So, so it makes sense to me that you know a, a meta a fast metadata store that is that is eventually. I think there's kind of an, an eventual consistency element to 
uh, Foundation DB. It's not. It's not um, as maybe as strongly consistent as. Oh no! Spanish. It is. <laughs> oh, it is. Yes, it provides the the exact same semantics as uh, Spanner does. They are externally consistent, strictly serializable. Okay, then I will stop talking. But I just want to say it is interesting to, to to see that use case. Could you delve into a little more detail as to why that is a useful application for Foundation DB? Like what? Like you know, given this, I think Snowflake was started what like probably around nine or ten years, eight or nine years ago, something around the same time as Foundation DB. What were the other options that that Snowflake, as a data warehouse company, could have used around that time, and why was Foundation DB a, a useful fit? Yeah. So from my understanding, they um, they originally tried to use MySQL. And the reason that they that they would need a metadata store besides just managing the set of files that are part of the table is they also need the transaction model for Snowflake is actually snapshot isolation. So as a part of that, you do need to manage ongoing transactions. It's not, it's not purely read-only data. And as a part of that, they use FoundationDB to manage the locks and other things that... Um, like they implement the transactions at the foundation DB layer. And when they were using MySQL, again, this is from my understanding, I've never worked at uh, Snowflake. They just weren't confident that they would be able to deploy and scale MySQL at the the level that they needed and to have the confidence that they needed in it. Because for example, in the default replication configuration, replication in MySQL is asynchronous. So uh, you can lose some data in between a primary and a replica if the primary fails before it's replicated data to the replica. Um, so with FoundationDB, the, the replication is synchronous and like you're just, there are a lot, you get more guarantees out of it basically than what you get out of MySQL. So that's why it was, was important for them to have um, not only a scalable metadata store, but something that was strongly consistent so that they could implement the transaction model for Snowflake. And just to build a little bit more of a foundational clarification. Again, this is, I think, one thing that makes this an abstraction that is useful for building higher level abstractions is, as I understand, the API for FoundationDB is not something that you would want to give to an application developer, like a higher level application developer. Like if I'm building, you know, an accounting software, for example, I might want a SQL API or I might want a document uh, database API. And I think FoundationDB provides an API that's that's more granular or more lower level. You wouldn't actually want the the accounting software application developer to be accessing FoundationDB direct. Is that accurate? Is the API maybe more for kind of infrastructure developers? That is correct. It is it is purely an API. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say you would never want an application developer to use it um, because I'm sure for simpler use cases, it may be perfectly fine. But for... Um, for a more complicated app like accounting software, from your example, you'd be implementing a lot of things that are, you know, a part of higher level database software. Like for example, secondary indexes. Secondary indexes are a a construct that you build out of keys and values in FoundationDB, um, and specifically, you just make like one one range of keys be a secondary index on a different range of keys, and we can talk about that type of thing more a bit later. But yes, the the things that you would build with it are typically higher level abstractions for other people to use. Like for example, um, Apple open sourced uh, recently the the record layer, which is a part of, it's used within iCloud as a part of CloudKit. And that is a library exposed to application developers at Apple working on the iCloud system so that they can they can get the benefits of something that looks roughly like a relational database, although it's not SQL. And that's 
it uses FoundationDB for the underlying data storage. Let's talk about the architecture, and then we'll get into the transaction system of FoundationDB. And the reason I want to discuss those two elements is because I think this makes it more... It's going to be impossible to cover all of the intricacies of, of FoundationDB, but in order to give people a, an understanding of how this thing relates to other database systems, I think going through the architecture and the transactionality will be useful. So a FoundationDB server cluster, it's a distributed system. It's got three types of servers. You've got the storage nodes, which store the actual data. You've got the coordinators, which run Paxos and do leader election. And then you have a transactional authority. Explain what a transactional authority is. Yeah, so in, in FoundationDB, the transactional authority is, it's actually multiple pieces that scale out across across multiple machines, um, but it's kind of its own component that you can think of it that way. What the transactional authority does is it's responsible for, and we'll talk about this more in detail later, but the, the core uh, th- basically thing that everything is built on top of in FoundationDB is called the version. And the version is just a number. It's a counter. If people are familiar with with database with database theory, it's basically what you would call a timestamp oracle. And it is just a number that counts up, goes up about a million, a million times a second. And this is used as a clock within the cluster to order transactions. And that's held on a component called the master. And this is a singleton process in the cluster. And I can talk about later why this is not a scalability bottleneck, but just for now, moving on to the other piece, the, the second most important piece would be the resolvers. And the resolvers run an algorithm in parallel across multiple machines or multiple cores. And the resolvers take in transactions broken up by ranges of keys that have been written. So FoundationDB is an ordered database. The keys are stored in order lexicographically. And they the resolvers detect if transactions conflict um, between the read version of your transaction and the commit version of your transaction. Just going back to the version number I talked about before, you get one when you start a transaction and you get one when you commit. So the resolvers detect if any key has been modified that you read between your read version and your commit version. That's basically what the resolvers do. And they do that in parallel, sharded by key range. And when one of them says that your transaction has conflicted, a message is sent to the proxy, which is a different role that's kind of part of the transaction system, kind of part of the uh, the clients. It's basically the it's called the proxy for a reason. It intermediates the communication between the client and the rest of the system. And when any one of the resolvers says that your transaction has failed, it will send a message back to the proxy telling that will tell your client to eventually retry your transaction because FoundationDB is an optimistic concurrency system and you're, you have to be prepared for your transactions failing because of conflicts. And the client libraries basically hold your hand in writing a transaction that is easy to retry. Um, they basically all just accept uh, a function that the library itself will call multiple times as your transaction conflicts. Um, so it's kind of transparent to you. You don't have to think about it very much. But yeah, that's basically what the transactional authority does. It's, I think that documentation came back from when it was a commercial product, so it wasn't super detailed, but that's what the, the underlying implementation looks like from a high level. How many nodes do you need to have a transactional authority function as it's supposed to? So the way that FoundationDB is written, you actually, for a production-ready uh, cluster, you need more than this. But all of the roles actually run within a single process. 
And that is useful for when you're just deploying it on your laptop, for example. But even in a production scale deployment where you may want to have um, at least five machines in the cluster so that the coordinators can have a quorum of five members to handle failures of, of any two members without losing the database. There's an indirection in the code between the roles that a physical operating system process performs and the roles of the database. So it's kind of up to you in terms of how many processes you run you want to run, but the way that you deploy it is basically you deploy one process per core on the machine and the cluster can handle assigning roles to the different processes, but you also are given some hooks to say, I would prefer this machine to have this number of processes of this type and this number of processes of that type. So you're, you get a lot of freedom in that configuration. That's where some people stumble with FoundationDB, unfortunately, is just doing that configuration part, but there's lots of help on the forums. So to, to answer the question, basically it's, it's up to you um, you need a minimum of three to do a you know a redundant deployment. Five would be more realistic, and that's just five cores. But you would obviously use all of the cores on whatever machines you're deploying to. So that's basically it. I've seen database architectures that do not have a component called a transactional authority. Why do I need this thing? What problems does a transactional authority solve? The transactional authority in FoundationDB is used because FoundationDB is not architected like a traditional clustered database. I would say it looks much more similar to how you would design a multi-core database because basically assuming that all of the communication between threads on a machine is, is reliable, which it generally speaking is, you would design a parallel database as in parallel on a single machine, multiple threads. You design it somewhat like this in the sense that you'd have different threads performing the transaction isolation function. You'd have a thread that keeps track of the, the clock in the, in the machine to basically order, order the transactions across the multiple threads. What, what other databases typically do is they use distributed consensus algorithms like uh, Paxos or Raft on the commit path of transactions. So they themselves are performing that's some of the some of the job of isolation and then they also have locks that look much more like a traditional like a two-phase locking architecture. There's other architectures, but the way that FoundationDB works in general is there is uh the cluster is assumed to be in an available working state. The processes of the transactional authority that is and whenever any of those processes fail, that is detected and all of them are replaced to basically make a new version of the transaction system. So it's operating all as a cohesive unit. And that is really important for how FoundationDB guarantees its, its isolation level. There are no, no transactions will proceed during any failure of the transactional authority. And that sounds kind of scary. You're like, oh, is that a single point of failure? Well, in some sense it is, but in the in practice, what happens when one of those processes fail that's part of the transactional authority is the database goes through what's called a recovery, which takes a few seconds to recruit a new process to replace the, the one that failed. And it's, it's really not that big of a deal. Obviously, you don't want it to happen all the time, and it can be slightly disruptive for those two seconds. But the important thing to know is that the database still maintains all of its guarantees that it's giving to you, like the fact that you have an ACID transaction. And it's not acid in the sense of 
oh, we don't have any of the isolation bugs that are actually named in the, the SQL spec that can happen during, for example, like repeatable read or read committed. It's like actually externally consistent, strictly serializable in the strongest sense of the word. Let's talk through transactions. Let's talk through a read and a write. When a client is interacting with a foundation DB cluster for a read, so let's say my, for example, my my client, my my my. This is guys. This is a complicated example, but if a, you know some Snowflake metadata server makes a request to Foundation DB to get to read some information about the metadata that's in your Snowflake DB uh, actual you know S3 stored data, you know you've got to do a read. So this this client is going to interact with the transactional authority initially. What happens in that in that interaction between the client and the transactional authority? So for a read transaction, you start a transaction and you talk to the proxy. And this is there is no non-transactional read. Just so you know, I have to go through this bit in the beginning here. And this happens for any transaction you perform with some caveats that I can talk about later, but that are not that important. They're just performance optimizations. Your client will ask the proxy to get you the read version for your transaction. By the way, where does the proxy sit? Is that kind of on the client side or on the server side or is it middleware? The proxy is its own role deployed within the cluster, just like any of the other roles. So you you deploy storage processes, uh, transaction processes, coordinators. One of the roles is just called proxy. And it's just like any of the other roles in the database. You don't deploy it any, any differently. Your client library, which... The client library for FoundationDB is uh, it's written in uh, or it's it's exposed as a C library, and all of the clients make wrappers for the C library. And your client library does very important things for you. And there's a reason why people don't just go implement the protocol and why they use the client library. And it's because the client library does a lot of sophisticated things. One of the things that it does is it batches the requests to proxies to start transactions among multiple transactions on your client. So you, you, you have that first level of batching that happens where multiple begin transaction requests are batched together. Then they're sent to the proxy. The proxy does another layer of batching there between other start transaction requests. And then the batch that is sitting on the proxy, the proxy sends a very small message that basically says, give me commit versions or uh, give me read versions. And the read version is the highest version that has ever been committed to the database previously. And this is important for maintaining causal consistency among your reads. So you, when the uh, when the master sends back the read version to the proxy, the proxy then replies to all of the batches that it has received with the read version for that transaction. So that is part of the explanation why the master is not conceivably a bottleneck until you're at an absurdly high transaction start rate. So that's the getting a read version because FoundationDB is a multi-version system and optimistic concurrency. After that, and for all of the reads after that, your client does not go through the proxy. Your client talks directly to the storage servers that have the data. And this is another important difference between many other database systems and FoundationDB is that all of the storage replicas of your data can participate equally in reads. And usually in other systems, you can only either, if you want the most up-to-date data, you can only read from the leader 
of that shard. And FoundationDB doesn't work that way. You can read from any of the, the replicas of that shard. And by the way, the sharding is not exposed to you. It's all transparent. So your client just talks directly to the storage server that has the data and says, hi, I would like to read this key at this version. And your client just returns the data to you directly. So in any further reads after that, that's all you're doing is directly talking to storage servers. There's no going through proxies. Um, so it's, it's very efficient. When the client gets this read, uh, the, the read is called a consistent read version. Could you talk a little bit more about the versioning here? What is it, What is a read version? The read version is just a 64-bit number, counts up over time, approximately 1 million per second. And the, the, the owner of that number is the master. It basically acts as the thing that hands out the versions. And that's important because there can only be one in the cluster. If you want to be able to compare these versions and know that you know, there, there aren't two parallel tracks of transactions committing in the database, like a split brain scenario basically is what that would be called. You do, there's only one of these. And the, the version is used in the true sense of a multi-version storage system. So there are different at different points in time, which are different versions, there could be different values for keys. So if you update a key at say version 10 to some some value, doesn't matter what the value is, and a client comes along and says, I would like to read at version 10, you'll get that value. If at some point later, another client updates that key and say that's at version 20, the, the client that's stuck at version 10, it will always get the data that's at version 10. Or if there's another client that is reading at version 10, it will get the data for version 10. So there are different values for keys at, at different points in time. And that's how you get a consistent snapshot of the database at that point in time, is all of your reads are done at that version. Are there situations in FoundationDB that can lead to problematic read inconsistency? Or maybe you could just talk about what, I mean, you, you spoke about strong consistency earlier what is the consistency story of foundation db and and you know are there circumstances where maybe i'm trading off you know a, i get a slower database experience in exchange for strong consistency tell me about the kind of problematic cases that can for the read path so generally speaking no you're not trading off for especially for reads you're not trading off anything uh, for consistency if anything it's on the right path uh, where things get more complicated and the way that transactions work in Foundation B in terms of the consistency model, and, I, and here I'm talking about consistency in CAP, in the CAP theorem sense. And from that perspective, they're talking about linearizable, which is basically if you have some object and you write to it, all of the writes and reads to that object are happening in what is basically a real-time order. There is no uh, drifting backward and forward in time as different clients do their read. Everybody sees the same thing in the same... And that is the... That is a transaction model. And it's not just, and that's linearizability in the cap theorem sense. There's also serializability, and that is the uh, the database, or generally people are more familiar with it from, from SQL databases. Serializability is basically just the, um, the notion that your transactions uh, happen in a defined order, as if one of them executed at a time. It is importantly not the real-time order in the general sense of serializability, your transactions can be reordered under serializability. What FoundationDB provides is stronger than both of those, or I should say as strong as both of those combined, you get what is called strict serializability, which is linearizability plus 
serializability. Okay, let's talk about the write path in more detail. What happens during a write? So in the in the most boring sense, uh, nothing happens during a write. The client library buffers all of your writes locally until you commit your transaction. So you can be you know going along, doing whatever you're doing in your transaction, reading and writing, and your writes don't have any latency. Your writes just instantly return to you. Uh, the the actual write operation where you're calling set on a key, for example, or delete. Both of those operations happen instantly. And when you commit your transaction, your transactions, what are called mutations, which is basically just writes, are all bundled together and they're sent to the proxy. And this is where you basically start the transaction, the transactional authority that you were talking about. This is the, the start of that. You're at the uh, beginning when you contact the proxy, you're sending your mutations and what are called read and write conflict ranges. And those are the keys that you read and wrote in your transaction. And this is going to sound overly complicated for just doing a, a simple write, but there are no simple writes in FoundationDB. Every transaction that writes data goes through this process. So you send your, uh, your read and write conflict ranges, which are the keys that you read and wrote during your transaction, to the plus the mutations to the proxy. The proxy takes the read and write conflict ranges those get sent to the resolver. The resolvers perform their conflict detection that I talked about earlier. If that passes, your mutations get sent over to a different process class that we haven't talked about yet called the transaction logs. And your transaction needs to commit to all of the relevant transaction logs. Importantly, all, not a quorum. And by relevant, I mean there is, from what I understand, this is this is some of my, my weaker understanding of FoundationDB, is that the way the transaction logs work is that they're sharded by key range. And if you happen to write all of your, if all of the keys that you write happen to be destined for one transaction log, because you just, let's just say that you wrote one key, it's only naturally going to be destined for one shard at that point. So it needs to be replicated onto three transaction logs to maintain fault tolerance. And this is important when I say not a quorum, I mean all three. If your transaction only writes to one shard, that needs to be additionally replicated onto more transaction logs that are for different shards. And there's a, you don't have to think about this at all. It's all handled for you. But basically your transaction gets replicated onto the right number of transaction logs to maintain fault tolerance. And asynchronously, the storage servers all pull the data from the transaction log that owns the shard that they're a part of. And storage servers can own multiple shards. The shards in FoundationDB are kept relatively small for even data distribution. Once your transaction is successfully committed to all of the relevant transaction logs, uh, the proxies will receive a reply saying, good to go. Transaction is committed. It passed conflict detection and it's on the transaction logs. And then it can reply to your client saying the transaction committed successfully. Just to recap, when is a write considered fully accepted by the cluster? When is the situation such that I've initiated a write, the write has been fully accepted by the cluster, and any read to the cluster will now read the data from that write. The point at which your your transaction is considered accepted is when you receive a reply saying your transaction committed successfully. But the, the point at which that actually happens in the database is when it's committed onto all of the transaction logs. There's an important caveat, which is in any database, not just FoundationDB, if the message saying that your transaction committed successfully never arrives at your client, you have no way of knowing whether your transaction committed successfully or not. And that's exposed to you in FoundationDB through an error message called uh, commit unknown result. 
And that basically just says, we don't know what happened. It could be that the network went down right at the inopportune moment when you were about to receive a reply, um, or it could be that a recovery happened at some point when you're trying to commit your transaction. And at that point, you just retry your transaction. And the the important thing to know is that just like in any other database system, you need to make your transactions idempotent. Okay. We've explored the transactionality in some detail. We've explored the architecture in some detail. I know this is an imperfect way to assess databases, but I'd like to do some comparisons. So first of all, when I think about lower level systems that we can build data systems on top of, I think of an abstraction known as a storage engine. So in um, in MongoDB, for example, there's a storage engine called uh, Wired Tiger, I think. In what's the MySQL? So the My, MySQL storage engine, uh, whatever, they have some MySQL storage engine. There's InnoDB, and then InnoDB. there's also uh, MyRocks, which is uh, RocksDB. That is a, a newer storage right. engine that uses RocksDB. Right, RocksDB, Okay. Do you consider FoundationDB a storage engine? Yes, I would say I do consider FoundationDB a storage engine, but it also has storage engines internally. There are two of them at this point. There is the the SSD storage engine, which is it uses the B tree from SQLite, and then there's also an in-memory option, which importantly durably stores the data on disk and it has all of the same transactional guarantees as the SSD storage engine. It just you just must have data that fits in memory. So yes, I would consider it a storage engine in the sense of if you swapped a foundation DB cluster for an embedded key value store that you would consider a storage engine, like RocksDB, for example, the programming model would be very similar. Okay. So how would we compare foundation DB to RocksDB? So the the fundamental comparison, I think at the at the lowest level, if you were if you're using the SSD storage engine in FoundationDB, is that RocksDB is an LSM tree, and there are trade-offs that um, are probably outside of the the scope of this discussion, but basically they are different, and depending on the workload, one can be better than the other. That is very complicated in and of itself. But the other comparison that you can make is that as far as I know, I, I'm not super familiar with RocksDB, but I don't think the transaction model is as rich. And I don't know if RocksDB has multi-versioning, um, which is an important part of using FoundationDB, is that you can have transactions that are proceeding at, at multiple versions. So the comparison, I would say, is they're, they're actually relatively similar from a programming model perspective. You would just need to read the, the fine print. Okay. What about Spanner? or Cockroach, these consistent SQL databases, globally consistent? Yes. So again, at a, at a relatively superficial level, an important thing is that both of those offer um, a SQL interface. They also, interestingly enough, are both built on top of key value stores. And if you read the original, the original papers about Spanner, and some of the, f- the papers further on, like the, the paper about F1 from Google as well, you'll see that Spanner is a key value store and they describe it in relatively similar terms to FoundationDB. But FoundationDB is, is very different from those databases when it comes to how it implements those guarantees. Both Spanner and CockroachDB attempt to use wall clocks and Spanner can use wall clocks to maintain its consistency because Google deploys 
atomic clocks and GPS clocks in their data center to maintain you know a very tight bounds on the the potential clock skew. And uh, you can get the you can get that similar system from AWS as well through a system called TimeSync, as far as I know, that you could use when you're deploying CockroachDB. Um, CockroachDB uses a different system called Hybrid Logical Clocks, which has its own set of trade-offs. But both of those databases are attempting to be globally consistent in the sense that you're deploying them in multiple regions, as in multiple largely you know, separated by hundreds or even thousands of miles geographically dispersed data centers. And FoundationDB is just if you deploy a single cluster in the default configuration, that would not be a usable foundation DB cluster. The it would just it just wouldn't just wouldn't work right. Um, it's not designed to be a globally distributed database. There are newer features that are being added right now, and some of them some of which which already exist that allow you to deploy a multi-region cluster, which is essentially multiple clusters that are communicating with each other that allow you to you know read and write data and you just pay a little bit of a latency penalty from the region that isn't the the active region and if you you know if you read the fine print of spanner and and cockroachdb i think that the the difference between a multi-region configuration of foundation db and the latency penalties that you're paying doing you know global transactions in spanner they're they're actually not that different especially in foundation db if you're okay with stale reads in a multi-region configuration you can read you can read stale data, you know, very slightly stale from the secondary region without paying a latency penalty. So from a they're different in the sense that they they also try to they do what what I think is best described as partitioned consensus. So in CockroachDB and in in Spanner, they both do consensus on the individual shards of data. So that, for example, you could have one shard that's down. That's having issues, and another shard can be committing transactions just fine. And if your if your data if your transactions only touch data in the shard that's up, then you don't even notice. But Foundation DB doesn't work that way. If any of the nodes in the transactional subsystem are down, then it has to do a recovery. But as I said, that only takes a couple seconds. So the differences I think are very important. But for an application developer, if you're not deploying a database in multiple regions, and you're just, for example, using CockroachDB in one region or Spanner in one region, ignoring the SQL aspect of it, which is very important, admittedly, it wouldn't feel that different to you. Let's revisit some areas of FoundationDB. FoundationDB has an abstraction called a layer. What is a layer? A layer is an agreement between two different pieces of software, potentially just the same software running on multiple machines, to agree on the format of keys and values so that uh, keys and values written by one program can be interpreted by another program in some higher level way that is not just the raw bytes of the keys and the values. And I think the um, the best example of this that is basically used by, it's used by most of the higher level layers that people build is what's called the tuple layer. And the tuple layer, uh, it it, in, it exposes an API that allows you to encode tuples, which in most programming languages are just arrays. And it, it takes the individual elements of those tuples, like strings, integers, floats, raw byte strings, and it encodes that in a way that will sort intuitively. So for example, you could have an array of, of two values, could be the string a and the integer one. If you encode that, that will come before, as in if you do a range read, it will, be, it will come first before 
another tuple that, for example, could be encoded as first element string A with the integer two. So you can read things back out in order and you can build these tuples that represent higher level things in your data model. And if different pieces of software or the same software running on multiple machines all understand the tuple layer and the tuple layer comes with all of the all of the official bindings and probably all of the community bindings as well for FoundationDB. Um, you can have different pieces of software interoperating on the same data. FoundationDB is written in Flow, which is, as I understand, a language designed for FoundationDB. So this was a domain-specific language for creating FoundationDB. It compiles to C++. Why does FoundationDB need its own language? Flow is, is I would say, mostly C++. Um, anybody that's programmed in C++ will look at this and say, this is C++. What Flow does is it's a, uh, it's a very simple compiler that adds a few features that basically expose actor model concurrency to C++, and it makes it easier to write concurrent programs in C++. The reason why that was necessary is that FoundationDB is, is tested in a very rigorous way using what's called a deterministic simulation. And the reason they needed a new programming language to do this is that to get a deterministic simulation, you have to make something that is deterministic. It's kind of obvious, but it's hard to do. For example, if your process interacts with the network or disks or clocks, it's not deterministic. If you have multiple threads, uh, not deterministic. So they needed a way to write a concurrent program that could talk with networks and disks and that type of thing. They needed a way to write a concurrent program that that does all of those things that you would think are non-deterministic in a deterministic way. So all FoundationDB processes, and FoundationDB, it's basically all written in Flow except a very small amount of it from the SQLite B tree. The reason why that was, was useful is that when you use Flow, you get all of these higher level abstractions that, that let you do what feels to you like asynchronous stuff. But under the hood, it's all implemented using callbacks in C++, which you can make deterministic by running it in a single thread. So there's a there's a scheduler that just calls these callbacks one after another and it's it's very crazy looking C++ code like you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to read it, but it's because of flow they were able to implement that deterministic simulation. Why did you get interested in foundation DB? The reason that I was interested in FoundationDB is that at many companies that I've that I've worked with and jobs that I've had, there just there is an explosion of different data systems as the company goes from you know just starting or not that big. They start out with something like a, rela- a single relational database, and then they add a background job queue and a cache, and then they add a search engine. And they realize that they need to start putting things in Kafka so that it's easier to make those downstream things consistent. And it just is piles and piles and piles of stuff. And the 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 way that FoundationDB can help with that is you you can build all of these you can build these systems all inside of FoundationDB with transactions. So it's very trivial to write these like these big complicated systems that you would you would need a bunch of of different databases for. You can implement the parts of that that you need for yourself in FoundationDB, and it's all in one cluster, and it's just one API for you to learn. It's a lot simpler. It's different. It is very different from from the way people are used to thinking about data systems, 
but I think there are a lot of benefits if you if you understand it and you you buy into the idea that um, you're gonna do you're gonna do some things yourself. Um, it's gonna be different, but the the product that you end up with at the end is is easier for you, easier to use and better, and has has stronger guarantees. Why did Apple buy Foundation DB? That's a great question. I don't actually know a concrete answer, but I think that the reason why anybody would want to use it are very similar to why Apple would buy it. I understand that Apple is a very heavy user of Cassandra and the as you deploy very large Cassandra clusters, as I'm sure people that have used Cassandra would tell you, it can be difficult to deploy large Cassandra clusters that manage a large amount of data. And the guarantees you get from Cassandra are not particularly strong. They're nothing like the guarantees you get from FoundationDB, for example. So if you, if you want to provide, if you have a system like iCloud, for example, which is uses the record layer now, you would want your application developers to be able to have a they want to make these systems that store and process a large amount of data. Like there's a ton of data in iCloud, but they don't want to have to, they don't want everybody to have to be distributed systems experts to make something that actually works, which is a challenge when you're, you're running at the, you know, those giant scales is that if you want to have something usable that actually, you know, it scales and it can handle the load of requests that your customers are generating, you need something that you you used to need something like Cassandra that gave up some guarantees in order to get you scalability. But with FoundationDB, it scales fairly well, and uh, I can understand why Apple would want to want to use it. How has the FoundationDB community evolved since that acquisition? The FoundationDB community is relatively small, but it's made up. And you you wouldn't know this, and I don't think most people know this, but there are a lot of large companies that you have heard of. Evaluating FoundationDB to use for various use cases in their company. I don't think I have anybody that I'd feel comfortable naming on a on a show like this. But basically, suffice it to say, even if it doesn't look like the community is big, the community is filled with lar- people that work at large, important companies because FoundationDB is such an interesting and compelling technology that even if it doesn't end up being deployed, people get interested enough in it to definitely investigate. We've done a number of shows from companies that either explicitly or uh, or have been given the qualification from uh, external commentators as this definition of new sequel uh there's this this term new sequel and i think this is kind of a a perspective of uh it's a multi-model sequel uh system like there's these systems that they want to solve uh, all the different problems that you want out of a data platform. You want SQL, you want uh, document, you want data warehousing, maybe even want a data lake. You want as many things as possible out of this same uh, repository of data. That's kind of the way that I see new SQL. But people have their varying definitions. Do you have a, a definition for, for new SQL? Do you have a perspective on that term or that trend, that, that set of database companies and projects? I do. I think that the the best definition of NoSQL that doesn't try to include any new database built in the last 10 years, because <laughs> it's very easy to do that. Um, I think NoSQL is defined by just a few things. They need a SQL interface. Uh, they typically like to piggyback off of some existing wire protocol like MySQL or Postgres because it's easy. 
clients are in, in every language. And they try to provide a SQL database that will scale to multiple machines without giving up too many of the features that people are used to in other single node relational databases. Where this gets complicated though is they do give up most of them, except Spanner and to an extent CockroachDB, although I would say the the two that have the strongest guarantees would be that our our new SQL would be would be Spanner would be the strongest. Um, if you want to talk and Foundation DB has basically the same consistency guarantees as, as Spanner. They try to provide that you know, it's, it feels like a SQL database, but you can't, in a lot of them, you can't turn on serializable isolation, or if you do, it's really slow. But basically, they're just trying to provide a scale out SQL database. I think that when you get into these other areas that are like documents, you kind of get into, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a multi-model database would be a better way to describe it than the new SQL. But the, the database landscape is very complicated now. You have to read the fine print a lot to understand what these systems really do. And you know, even if they offer an API for something, for example, it may not be very good. So you just have to do your research. Ryan Worrell, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Wow.